Hey, this is Mike C. of The Natural Man Podcast. I gotta get this out of the way right off the top. The Natural Man Podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only and should not be constituted as medical advice or diagnosis of any kind or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man Podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of The Natural Man Podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the natural man podcast that's it here we go calling all health nuts this is the natural man podcast welcome to the natural man podcast my name is mike c thanks for joining us for another episode Uh, this is an exploration into health wellness and improving one's vitality and today our topic of discussion is autism and the autism spectrum disorder, which is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. It's a condition that affects communication skills and behavior. It causes significant social communication and behavioral challenges, and it doesn't affect people in the same ways. Some who suffer from autism have tremendous challenges while others can function more independently. Autism is often detected in children through observable learning delays and specific behaviors. And the good news is there is help available. There is now a growing body of physicians who have done extensive research into this condition and now offer treatment options beyond standard drug therapy. And the results appear promising. Our guest today is a doctor who's been in practice for nearly 20 years. She offers what is called the biomedical approach to treating those on the autism spectrum. She has her own busy and thriving practice in the Toronto area. We are pleased to welcome to the Natural Man podcast, Dr. Sonia Doherty. Dr. Doherty, thanks for joining us on the episode today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's it's a privilege and uh, pleasure to kind of chat with you today and, and your audience about the importance of medical treatment of autism. I mean, when it comes down to it, this is a quality of life issue, right? Our kids... Uh, have medical issues. They've been identified through research. Um, there's, you know, even though I've been doing this almost 20 years, some people have been doing it almost 40 years. So we need to make wow. sure that parents know how to help their kids. So I, I appreciate you getting this information out to to more and more people. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've followed your work for, for many years and I've known you for a long time. And uh, I, I love the work that you do. I mean, you've always just dug into research. And, uh, you know, it's like every time I talk to you, you've uncovered this whole new area of, of, you know, application to patients in your practice, which just fascinates me. And, uh, no, I'm, I'm overjoyed that, that you're here today. So thanks for being here. Thanks. I, I wrote an article, um, years and years ago, and it was right after my daughter was born. So she's my second child. And it was, you know, how, 
I was obviously falling in love with her as a, as a new little person in my life, but uh, as a juxtaposition, meeting more and more families who were looking outside the mainstream to help their kids. And, and it's just, these are such incredible, strong, you know, tenacious, beautiful families because, you know, there, there are answers out there and they're not getting them usually straight from their medical doctor when they're diagnosed. They're often sent for behavioral therapy, but we know behaviors often have their roots in medical concerns. And, yeah. and so it's just such a, you know, most days in practice, I get to see how kids are progressing. And I think that makes me uh, more committed to making sure I have all the information that available so that I can help as many kids as possible. And and really huge credit has to go to the doctors who came before me, who found this information and started to help kids and said, you know, there's something going on here medically and we need to, we need to shift the paradigm. Yeah. Definitely. And I mean, it's, it's so much more than, than behavioral. And I think that people on the surface will judge a child who's on the spectrum that they're just, they're not disciplined or the parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And I've, I've even seen, I've even read stories of counselors that are dealing with autistic behaviors in this way. And and there's a whole biological and physiological aspect to what's going on in these kids. And, you know, it's I'm glad that you're getting that that knowledge and information out now um, so that the approach can be more from a, you know, a medical and practical standpoint and not just pointing fingers that some kid, well, this kid doesn't behave or you didn't raise them right. I mean, I mean I've seen that. And that's that's very troubling to me. It's so troubling, and I it is it is a it's a human rights travesty. I mean, yeah. uh, we have literature that's robust showing that you know, for example, undiagnosed gastrointestinal issues or problem in the gut relate directly to things like head banging, aggression, uh, jumping, screaming for no reason, crying for no reason, and so rather than a, you know assess these children within the medical model, which we can do easily with something as easy as a bowel X-ray they're put into therapies um, to try to therapeutically treat a behavior that is of a medical origin. Um, and so it is critical that parents know behavior is almost always medical. I, I yeah. just believe it's almost always medical and, and the isolation parents feel not knowing that is, is awful for everyone. Right. And I remember yeah. having difficulty even, you know, going to the grocery store because of some of the behavioral concerns that we were experiencing with our son with autism. And, you know, and, and I knew there was a medical treatment that we were, well, we're doing the medical treatment. So it, it's helping children first and foremost, improve their quality of life. That has a ripple effect within the family, then the extended family in their therapy and in therapies with their teachers. I mean, when kids with autism have their behavior properly assessed and treated, it's a it's a huge ripple effect through our communities. Absolutely, yeah. and I, and I mean that the biomedical approach um, just makes so much sense to me. And I know that's your approach to treating these kids. Talk a little bit about that. Like, tell me what the biomedical approach is. Yeah, great. So I trained um, at the University of Western Ontario in a in a BSc kinesiology program. So I was sort of prepped to go on to the medical sciences. Uh, I chose naturopathic medicine because naturopathic medicine looks at the root cause. 
and it treats people individually. And so those were um, tenants that I really resonated with. And my sister's also a naturopathic doctor. So we, we finished our program in Toronto. It's a four-year postgraduate program. And, and we didn't learn a lot about autism. So when I first had uh, a child referred to me who was diagnosed with autism, a little girl, she still uh, we still see her in this community, um, I realized that I didn't have the information that I needed to help her. So I, I looked at the Autism Research Institute. They were doing a training called DAN, which was Defeat Autism Now. It was good training, but it morphed into the Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs, which was much more uh, comprehensive. And, and, you know, that idea of biomedical treatment included the individualized assessment and treatment of children. Um, and also just the, the reality that their biochemistry and physiology was different. And that it wasn't about curing autism or erasing people's autism. It was understanding that they are more at risk for medical concerns and they deserve treatment. They deserve to be properly medically treated. As we all. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you touched on you know, the whole brain, you know, you touched on the brain gut connection and how a lot of these kids have gastrointestinal challenges. Um, talk a little bit about why you feel that's uh, part of the picture here. Well, the, there's great literature. So the Human um, Microbiome Project was uh, a huge international project to look at the ecosystem that lives within our bodies. So we have you know, about 400 trillion good bacteria and the bacteria in our gut creates a metabolome, which the metabolome governs our brain metabolism. So I think it was David Perlmutter sort of who said, whoever's in charge of the gut is in charge of the brain. Um, as it relates specifically to autism, I mean, we're so fortunate in, in Canada because we have Dr. Derek McFabe who has shown, he's a researcher who's studied autism for 15, 16 years, uh, maybe even almost 20 now, but the um, he showed that you can induce autism in an animal model by uh, propionic acid, which is secreted by a microbe. So the microbe is clostridia, but more microbes than clostridia secrete propionic acid. And this changes the ecosystem in the gut, causes brain inflammation. And the most, to me, the most fascinating part of his research is that he showed when some of these animals were sacrificed that there was brain inflammation that was lifelong. There were some methylation issues, which we'll maybe get into in in, um, in the future with us chatting about methylation. But he basically showed the medical aspects of autism that were found at Johns Hopkins when brain samples were donated. So he showed that a microbe could cause the same problems that people with autism ended up having, which is lifelong inflammation in the brain. So he was awarded a top 50 scientific findings in Canadian history. Huge. Um, and he showed you could reverse this, so induce it and then reverse it with diet. The, wow. This is massive. And it's because he's local, I've had, again, like the privilege to talk to him and learn about his research. And it's given me confidence within my practice to say to parents, autism is highly medical. It's highly treatable. And a lot of these things are reversible, especially when we're talking about dealing with children who are younger, because if the inflammation goes on for decades, of course, there's going to be more damage and more disruption in the brain. So I, yeah. I think the frustrating part is we have this research, we've, we've given someone like Derek McFabe an award, there's been documentaries, there's tens of thousands of parents saying my child improved when we improve the gut function and, and change the diet. But still, it isn't hitting the mainstream. I mean, the first thing kids 
parents should be told when they have, uh, when they're given their diagnosis is they should start to investigate the gut brain connection. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you, you touched on, on diet and I know that sort of the first go-to in people's minds, if they have a gut issue is, well, I'll just go on probiotics. Um, not to slam probiotics, but there, there's a lot more to that. You can eat all the probiotics in the world you want if you're having cupcakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not that I would ever, you know, recommend that. Um, it's not going to fix your microbiome at all. It's just going to make things worse. But uh, tell me about that. I mean, do you use probiotics in sort of conjunction with a, a dietary um, approach? And what is that dietary approach? So the, you know, again, I had the opportunity opportunity to ask Dr. McFabe this question because as a world-renowned gut-brain researcher, you know, he said he doesn't have major issues with probiotics, but you can't transform the ecosystem in the gut with probiotics. I mean, there's, there's too many different um, species that live in our gut. We also have changed our intestinal flora through toxicity, hormones, um, you know, drugs, stress. So what is our, what is the ecosystem we're aiming for if we didn't understand what the optimal ecosystem was maybe a hundred years ago? So, the, you know, we want to feed the good bugs in, in our intestines and the good bugs feed on um, things like vegetables and fruit and, you know, a paleo diet, which I, I consider kind of like the original human diet. So no matter what your belief system is, However, we got this planet, we were given meat, vegetables, fruit, nuts, seeds, and eggs. And when we put children diagnosed with autism on this diet, their ecosystem improves and it starts improving within three days. Um, so I do use probiotics. I use them more as a targeted approach. Uh, the best example would be if someone does test positive for higher levels of clostridia, there's a certain probiotic that can go in and strip out the clostridia. So you, I use it as an adjunctive treatment, not as a core, because I don't, and I have not seen in my, anecdotally through my practice, that probiotics aren't enough to get kids better. They're not enough to fix this problem of the gut and brain um, synergy. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've shared in previous podcasts that I've had digestive issues myself over the years. And I found that, you know, eliminating um, a lot of those grains and sort of the the high omega six foods, um, and doing more of sort of a, a paleo approach was helpful for me as well. And you're right; it's not just probiotics because I I struggled taking probiotics for years and it didn't fix anything. Um, but when you make those dietary changes and you cut back on those processed foods and and a lot of those refined sugars, it makes a world of difference. And you can feel it sometimes within days. Absolutely. The, um, you know, the other piece of Dr. McFabe's research as it relates to grains is the propionic acid that is used to stop the grains from becoming moldy. So when, you know, as I understand it, I'm certainly not an expert in agriculture, but when they plant uh, grains, they put propionic acid. When they harvest them, they put propionic acid. When they store them, they put propionic acid. And it's a completely unregulated preservative. It's in higher amounts in processed foods. And propionic acid was what Derek McFabe showed could induce autism in that animal model. It depletes things wow. like B12, it depletes carnitine, you know, carnitine is in our meats, B12 is in our meats. 
I think our kids really thrive. And, you know, again, to give credit where credit is due, Dr. Martha Herbert wrote an incredible book that I recommend for every single parent who has a child diagnosed with autism. It's called The Autism Revolution. And, and she highlights diet in her book as well. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, now, let me ask you this. When uh, when you have a new child that comes into your practice for the first time, um, talk about the, the visual cues that you look at. Like part of your practice is observational, I'm assuming. Um, how do you tell where a kid's issues lie? What do you look for when a new kid comes to see you? It's such a great question. And, and one of the things that comes to mind is we recently were asked to do some work in China with uh, a PhD and, and doing a little bit of training for doctors. And, and then, of course, you know, talking to parents and it, because of the language barrier, it was fascinating to sort of just walk into a room and be able to look and, and essentially identify what the problem was just by watching a child play. And, um, you know, if we see our kids and they're lining things up, you see our kids or they're putting things really close to their eyes or they're looking over their sides of their eyes. I mean, we know immediately that there's a visual processing problem that relates back to energy production. So the brain needs 40% of its energy in any given moment to process the world visually. And uh, you you may know this, but I really learned this only in the last four or five years once they started looking at functional MRIs and the way that our brains are working. So we bring in visual information, we process it, and then we actually project what we see. So that's why all you know, those visual tricks where they're like, if you look here, this line disappears. That's all because your projection system can be tricked in certain circumstances. If you only have 30% energy in your brain for visual processing, you don't have the energy to project. So this is why our kids want sameness. They don't like new things. They don't like new places. Maybe they avoid eye contact with certain people, but can make eye contact with parents because they're more familiar with them. Certainly all the lining up. So the there's a wonderful TED talk. It's called How Brains Learn to See. And it's uh, Dr. Prakash Singha. And he is one of the only people I know to study visual processing in children diagnosed with autism. And it's about 20 minutes. I believe he's he's also researching robotics. But at the end, it shows you sort of this integration model where if you don't visually process, and if you can't track visual information properly, you can't group it, you can't integrate it. And then the whole brain changes. And so the first thing we do in treatment is typically to really start to repair the visual processing, which, you know, we learn to talk in part by looking at people's mouths, right? So if you can't do that, it's harder to, to progress with your expressive language. Certainly our social cues are, are very visual, focusing at school, uh, responding to someone's name, joint attention, all of these relate back to visual processing. Um, and so that's a huge one when kids walk in. It, it's... I would say 70, easily 75% of the time, that's our starting point. Um, now, let me ask you, you mentioned um, energy production. And so when you said that, uh, mitochondrial health popped into my head. Um, is that a component to how you look at this? Is there a problem with the mitochondria that's causing um, a compromised energy production system in that child? Absolutely. And the literature reflects that. Even Dr. McFabe, who I mentioned, showed that there was mitochondrial impairment in his animal-induced autism of uh, animal-induced model of autism. Um, there 
is, you know, Dan Rossignol and Richard Fry have published on this. And I believe I'd have to look up the exact number, but I think it's about 90% of studies show that there are mitochondrial impairments. So when we think about mitochondrial disease, these are children who are born and they're identified very quickly. They have severe physical disabilities. So mitochondrial disease is not the same as mitochondrial impairment, but in a world of toxins. So I think, you know, for example, a child born in North America now has about 700 chemicals in their cord blood. Wow. So those chemicals will then cause damage to the cell membrane. The cell membrane will then start to shed and it'll bombard the mitochondria and then the mitochondria become both less effective in producing energy, but they also produce more oxidative stress. So the example that I would give is, you know, I, I think a car engine, like a combustion engine is about 10% efficient. Our mitochondria are about 80% um, efficient. So mitochondrial impairment, even small differences in producing energy has a huge impact on, on our children's developmental potential. And, and there's a funny little picture. Uh, if you Google it, it's a homunculus. So a homunculus, if, if you pull up the picture, it looks like this, you know, this person with these really big eyes and really big mouth, big head, big hands, and then the rest of the body is represented as smaller. And then a homunculus is a visual representation of where our energy goes in our body. And so from a mitochondrial perspective, it's completely predictable that our children will have problems with eye contact and visual tracking. Completely predictable they will have expressive language delay, articulation clarity, and then they often struggle with their fine motor. But one of the things I've learned, you know, more recently in practice, so maybe like six years ago-ish, the um, children who don't speak at all, so the non-speaking community is now um, forming advocacy groups, and they're saying through letter boards or keyboards, um, they're communicating that they understand everything. In fact, one young man who's just a total inspiration hero to me, he's, he communicated off a letter board and we were at a, a meeting with a bunch of teachers, educators, and, and, he, and he had written a speech and he said, you know, it takes, his mom read the speech, it takes no energy for me to learn. It takes more energy than I have to point, to talk, to coordinate, my movements, and even to stop myself from stimming. So that mm. the world of autism really is now, like the people diagnosed with autism, I think are sharing with us that this is a brain-body disconnect, and the mitochondria is the key to reconnecting them. And so with toxins, obviously we're all bombarded with toxins every day, just living in the industrialized culture that we live in. How do we mitigate that? I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's in our air. It's in our water. You know, city water supplies are some of the worst. Um, obviously, it's causing cellular impairments and and even accelerated aging in all of us, and not just kids that are on the spectrum and adults alike. What do we do about that? Well, so my sister has spent many, many years. Um, her undergrad was in biomedical toxicology. Uh, and essentially, this is how toxins impact human health, and how we detoxify them. So the tenets of environmental medicine, I've, I've learned mostly from her, but a lot of the autism docs focus on this as well. Like I think uh, Stuart Friedenfeld is his name. He's, he's fantastic at this. He talks about you have to reduce it coming in, right? So you make sure your water is as clean as you it can be make sure your air filters are are cleaning out as much um, pollution as possible. We breathe in a lot of our toxins. 
the food that we eat, making sure that you understand the level of pesticides in your food, you know, the level, level of genetic modification. Um, we recommend connecting with your local farmers so you understand where your food's coming from, your meat's coming from. It's really about taking responsibility for what's coming into our bodies as much as we have control over. And then the exit routes are, are kind of like a, a map, right? So our biochemistry is just like a map from, you know, here to California. There's there's roads in, that you take and it's predictable. So methylation is the biochemical cycle that makes glutathione, which is the master antioxidant in the body. And I didn't make that up. It is actually called the master antioxidant. It's funny, but mm-hmm. glutathione will get rid of pesticides. It will get rid of things like fire retardants, um, you know, yeast, gliotoxins, lead, mercury, arsenic. I mean, unfortunately, we could sit here all day and list all the chemicals yeah. and pollutants that they have decided to pump out in the worst human experiment with with chemicals ever imagined. But it, the more glutathione you make, the more you can detoxify harmful substances. It also protects the mitochondria. So our glutathione protect mitochondria so that if they're functioning better, we get more energy. If they're functioning better, we also get less oxidative stress. So it's a more efficient engine and that's dependent on the methylation cycle, which in in autism is 90% negatively impacted. So 90% of people diagnosed with autism have methylation impairments. So this we believe is a large part of their risk factor. It's not genetic. 1% of autism is sort of purely genetic. The other 90, 90, percent is an interplay between our genes and the environment and it's really i think about some children can't get rid of these toxins yeah you talked about methylation and i know you and i have already discussed maybe doing another episode on that because that's a whole another conversation (laughs) that we probably don't have time to get into but give me the the quick sort of nuts and bolts of what methylation is for our listeners and viewers absolutely so um Again, I, I've just like like you, Mike. I've I've known some some incredible people for so long, and and I like to make sure that they're acknowledged. So, one of the women who who first sort of looked at the methylation impact has a, a daughter with Down syndrome and autism, and thankfully she had a fantastic friend who who was a nutritional biochemist at the Arkansas Children's Research Institute. So Jill James and and Jill James was the one who first started showing that children with autism have methylation impairment. So methylation is essentially the way our babies turn from two cells, right? From mom and dad into human beings. It is the cycle that makes neurons and it makes cell membranes. It makes the shuttles that allow healthy fats to get into the cells. It is responsible for repair. Uh, Methylation makes serotonin and dopamine, which helps us with processing information and learning and communicating and organizing information and focus. Um, methylation is also responsible for our genetic expression. So this is a critical cycle and and it's actually very easy to improve by providing methyl donors. So methyl donors come through our diet. So things like onions and garlic and and you can also provide methyl through nutraceutical supplements. So you can give a methyl B12 or, uh, you know, a SAMe, which is acetylmethionine trimethylglycine. So these methyl donors go into the methyl cycle. And because the methylation cycle is responsible for 200 downstream, um, really, really important critical 
um, biochemical activities in our body, it's the delivery of the methyl groups that ends up being so important. So for example, if someone was exposed to a toxin, they might have damage to their cells. If they have methylation impairment, they're not as likely to be able to repair that. The cell damage then changes the way the cell functions and the cell goes into what is called a cell danger response. And so instead of functioning properly, it's trying to conserve energy, drops the oxygen level, becomes slower metabolically. And so a lot of these kids that we see, not just with autism, in fact, any developmental delay can probably be improved by improving mitochondrial function, certainly improving diet, removing toxic exposures from the external environment and boosting methylation. So with uh, with methylation, then if you're having an impaired if you're having impaired methylation, that sounds like it just opens the doors to disease from how you're describing it. I mean, if if your cells can no longer maintain sort of the, the homeostasis of just regulating themselves and and maintaining their themselves and and fixing damage that happens just through you know uh, through oxidation and those processes. It sounds like it just opens the door to a lot of problems. Yes, and certainly outside of my sort of area of focus, which which is autism and developmental delay, people are using these same principles to help all kinds of chronic concerns. Uh, from fertility, I know one in eight Canadian couples has trouble getting pregnant. That can be improved through the same premise. And there's this uh, fragility con, uh, fragility index, and it's uh, four key pathways in the body that contribute to morbidity, so getting sick and mortality, and one of them is methylation. You know, it has to do with methylation, mitochondrial function, and the the downstream result is inflammation. And I think, isn't it Gabor Mate who wrote the book, um, and it starts, you know, how do you spell disease, and he spells out inflammation. It's it's the root of so many of the problems in our body. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do kids on the autism spectrum have sleep issues? And they do be, and in large part, I think, because of both the gut and the methylation. So methylation helps to make serotonin. Serotonin, 90% of it is made in the gut. And serotonin becomes melatonin. And melatonin is the way, the hormone that we need that will naturally put us to sleep. So most of our children don't make enough melatonin. Our brain actually cleans itself while we're sleeping. So there's a glymphatic system that you, you may be aware of that is very active at night. So when our right. children don't sleep, they also don't clean out the inflammation as effectively. And it's a, a vicious cycle that once it starts leads to um, often their regression. And without medical treatment, they don't necessarily come out of that. I mean, I've had patients over the years and they haven't slept in 10 years and they come to see us. Wow. And thankfully, because doctors and researchers have found the reason we can treat them. And I, you know, we want our kids to have all their opportunities. Um, but changing someone's sleep changes again the home. It, people who are sleep deprived, it, it's hard, it really has a massive impact on everybody's life. So something so simple, so safe, you know, everyone who has a child who has autism, who has trouble sleeping should be able to access that care. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What are some of the approaches you use? Do you use supplemental melatonin or do you try to stimulate the melatonin pathways through other nutraceuticals targeted to that? How do you approach that? Uh, both. So I believe that melatonin is extremely safe. You know, I think that you should be finding out why someone has low melatonin. But if if your child doesn't go to bed till midnight, and they're six years old, melatonin can help them get those earlier hours, which helps their brain. 
the methylation cycle is the root typically of, of the melatonin deficiency. Also, the stress system in our kids um, really depletes their magnesium. So we need to get them on nice, healthy green leafy vegetables or magnesium supplements as their, you know, their dietary treatment um, becomes broader and broader because, of course, our kids are very picky and they have a lot of food restrictions. So they're not necessarily going to just start eating kale and green leafy vegetables on day one. So I, I believe very much in addressing quality of life um, with what we would call almost like rescue interventions, um, get children better, get their families feeling better, get some more energy, and then we can start to implement the long-term repair of the methylation cycle, the gut, and the mitochondrial uh, production of ATP. Yeah. Is there an age where the damage is more extensive and harder to treat. You had mentioned earlier that the, you know, the younger the child is, the less developed the brain is, uh, the more interventions you can sort of utilize to get in there and reverse some of the inflammation and, and the things going on. Is What's the age range, if there is one, where that just becomes more difficult in your experience? So for quality of life, there's no age, you know, there's no age that we can't see a positive impact um, for most people because the medical issues are straightforward. And and I'll use this example, but I'll, I'll um, preface it by saying that, you know, obviously our children who do have developmental delays, it's like a trillion times more important than the example I'm about to give. But if someone had a injury in their knee and they had inflammation in their knee, the longer they have the inflammation, the more damage. And if they had inflammation for decades, there would be damage that may be very hard to repair. And so that would be the analogy that I would use, of course, acknowledging that a knee is not the same as a child's brain, right? But right. That, that inflammation will still cause damage the longer it goes on for. And how hard is it for parents to adjust when you give them your protocol or your recommendations? There's dietary interventions that you use that are probably a 180 degree turn from how a lot of families eat today. How difficult is that? Uh, I think it can be very difficult. In some cases, it doesn't um, get implemented at all or or it gets partially implemented. And and we uh, approach care, hopefully, in a very loving and compassionate way. But we're also very clear. Like, I think that's part of authenticity is being clear about what your expectations are. If you have a child who is four years old or five years old and they're not talking and they spend most of the day um, doing this stimming, this repetitive behaviors, and your goal is language, then you have to do the diet. So I, I, I ask their goals and I base my recommendations on your goals. I also have to give um, thanks and gratitude to some of the doctors that I learned from, like... Um, Dr. Julie Buckley, I think, is probably the person who influenced me the most when it comes to diet and being firm but loving with diet. And, and you know, she she said, and, and Dr. Buckley has a daughter um, diagnosed with autism, autism as well who's doing really well. She also had a severe seizure disorder. And she said, you know, when parents talk to me about diet, I say, diet's not hard. Autism's hard. Doing a diet's not hard. Having seizures is hard. And, and. And I just, that's, you know, what I share with people I share with the, um, you know, the permission of our son with autism, share the hope of, of what doing a hard diet and hard treatments can, can result in. And, and I think yeah. that's the parent 
you know, community that really helps with that because yeah, you're not going to do something unless you understand why. And then you also need the support to do it. You're, you're doing it in the hopes that a goal like, you know, reduction in behavior, improve sleep, improve learning, improve social interaction um, and communication. That's why we recommend the hard stuff. Um, that's why parents do it because we tell them that's the best way to get those big, I think really important uh, gains for their kids to come. Yeah. Yeah. Is there ever any pushback from the family's primary care physician who might've been treating them with medications or sort of the, you know, something counterintuitive to the biomedical approach? Do you ever have to wrestle with that or do you sort of become the primary care physician for that child? Have you ever had to deal with that in your practice? Certainly. I would say, um, for the most part, medical doctors are not treating children diagnosed with autism medically. The pharmaceuticals don't seem to work in our kids because even if they would improve behavior, they'll aggravate anxiety or sensory. Um, and so they don't really get a smooth benefit. So a lot of our kids can't take meds because they're not helping, they look for alternative treatments and and they often find success. So then that trust builds. So even if the physician, the primary care physician would say something like, well, diet doesn't help autism or, you know, you, you don't have to remove something like gluten. The parents have already seen the improvements in the child. And so their reality then um, trumps, I think, some of the concerns coming from the primary doctor. And I always say like, if your family doctor is, is concerned, you should be grateful Yeah, because their job is to help protect your child. Yeah, We may not agree, but it would be worse if your doctor had concerns and didn't bother telling you, yeah. you know, so, so where we probably get a little bit more pushback is the B12 injections. We do use a little small insulin syringe, but when B12 is then tested in the blood, sometimes it's high and the medical doctors will, will say you have to stop B12. Um, we then just share with the parents that it is water soluble, it is non-toxic and it's expected to be high because it's being supplemented. I don't know. We've, I guess it's almost 20 years in our community. So I have to say we've been pretty lucky to get more and more doctors referring, uh, collaborating. We have a, a fantastic new pediatric gastroenterologist in the region who's hmm. helping to medically treat the kids, understanding that the gut and the brain are connected Wow. Um, a recent case, you know, one of the patients I've worked with for a while did have not just gut brain sort of uh, microbiome problems, but had a medical problem so that she had to actually have different uh, and an intensive medical treatment to to have that dealt with. So we need our doctors like we need <laughs> we need our doctors to help look after yeah. our kids. It can't be. I love being an naturopath, but this has to be mainstream. It has to come through our yeah. medical systems. Yeah, definitely. And I yeah. think one thing we need more of, and times are changing, and the conventional side is opening up more to the integrative and, and holistic side, but it needs to be a team effort. You know, they, they shouldn't be in competition with one another. They should be complementary. And I don't think we're at that point yet, but I, I hope that, you know, as a society, we get there someday, because I think that'll only benefit the patient. I could not agree more. I mean, I really feel like our kids need a team and they need the, you know, their educators, their therapists, their, their traditionally trained doctor or pediatrician, 
a naturopathic doctor. I mean, we can, we can transform the trajectory of our kids' lives if we really understand the research and act on it. And, you know, no medical system's perfect. And I know the United States and Canada have different medical systems, but they, they are still a powerful system to protect our kids and to support them. So we try to do our best in building bridges and building relationships um, with the doctors in our community. And the first part of that is saying, you know, you need to include your doctor in this um, treatment. And again, we may not agree, but I will give you all the literature that shows that this is safe. And I will um, give you answers to the questions that you have in terms of concern or your doctor's concern so that there's that open transparency. Yeah. Now, as kids get older, um, they usually become more self-aware and they begin to understand um, I'm talking about kids on the spectrum, they start to understand how they're different. How do you think parents, or how do you recommend that parents have that conversation with their kids? That has to be a difficult conversation sometimes. And so what kind of guidance do you give to parents to a child who's getting older and who's maturing and who's realizing some of the challenges that they have? Such an important question. And I do think it's somewhat individual. Um, there are parents who don't want the word autism associated with their child because I believe there is a negative, you know, perception of autism. And so the first thing we need to do is start to understand what autism really is. And autism is not a, a deficiency state in the way that we have sort of been led to believe. So like that young man who talked about, it doesn't take any energy for my for me to learn. It takes more energy than I have to control my body, including communicating. But one of the messages they were giving to these educators was, just because I can't tell you I know that this is the color red, you can't keep teaching that to a 16-year-old. Like there has to be the understanding that it's not, it's not what it was presented to be the most quote unquote severe person with autism understands everything. So this gets into this concept of presumed competence, which I think is essential. It, we have two choices when we interact with anyone, but certainly people diagnosed with autism, we can presume they understand everything or we can presume that they don't understand anything. And one of those choices creates a lot of harm and one of them creates very little harm. So, we, we talk about presumed competence. We are part of the front line now of sharing with families because they'll say things like, well, they don't understand their name or they don't, they don't know I'm their mom. Now, that's not true. They know all of those things. They can't get their body and their brain to coordinate. And, and I think that will change autism. I can tell you as a parent, <laughs> we have always framed autism in our home as positive. This is a very incredible brain. The brain has longer neurons. They're more complicated. Children diagnosed with autism have to, often have more powerful brains. That's why I think they're more at risk for toxic, toxic um, damage. Because the longer the neuron and the more complicated, the more fuel it needs. And then the more you notice the deficit when the mitochondria can't produce that fuel. So this is how we framed it at our house. Um, and we, we frame autism as different, but also having these, these benefits. And so when my son, one day I was actually pulling out of the driveway and he kind of came running out, like not out to the road, but enough. So I was like, Magnus, you can't run out when I'm pulling out of the driveway. He's like, where are you going? 
I said, well, I'm going to go to work. And he's like, well, what do you do at work? And I said, I work with kids with autism. And he, he looked at me and said, is that what I have? <laughs> talk about not being prepared for the conversation. No kidding. So I said, listen, but we'll talk about this when I get home. Okay. I love you so much. Yeah. Go back in the house. So I can pull yeah, out. Yeah. Don't worry about, you know, hitting you. So, so I got yeah. home from work, kind of worked up, like, how am I going to have this conversation? Because I do, I, I work closely with people with autism. I have family members with autism. I, I believe the autistic brain is going to, and is already changing our world for the better. So this is my perspective, but I'm still nervous about this conversation. So I walk in the door. I said, okay, Megs, you know that question you asked me? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ileana and Rowan told me I had the bad autism, then he treated me, now it's the good autism. I got it. And that, that was it. <laughs> That's great. No pressure. <laughs> my older children had <laughs> explained that the bad autism was when he, his brain was hurting. Yeah. because of medical issues and and the good yeah. autism was what our children are capable of when we remove their medical obstacles yeah. so this is the gift this is my my whole life right my i say my yeah. professional personal life uh collided in an unexpected way but it, it, over the years i've become very grateful to sort of have that understanding and live with a person with autism who is incredible and he's not yeah. the same as other people you wouldn't necessarily pick that up in, in a quick conversation with him, but he notices the world in a different way than my other children. Um, he is unbelievably kind. He, he is so good at certain things. It's, he has a different perspective. And I personally now think this is a perspective that we desperately need. Like we need more really kind, particularly skilled people. We do. Yeah, yeah. there's too much low dopamine out there everybody's angry everybody's flying off the handle like we need more nice people <laughs> yes and and i don't know what your experience is but i you know we probably worked with over 10,000 families over the last 20 years and and there is is an inordinate amount of children and teenagers and adults who are diagnosed with autism who have that level of kindness that's just yeah. at that next level yeah 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 that's awesome and i mean what a beautiful way that you frame it that um, you almost make it, we see it as a, you know, traditionally we see it as a disability and a hindrance and all those other things, but, um, it's beautiful to see you embrace it within your own family and see the beauty in it. And, um, I just, I just commend you for that. I mean, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to see things through a positive light like that, instead of just seeing it as a, a crutch or a problem. That's awesome. Well, it's the parents that I work with and, and the mentors yeah. like Julie Buckley and, and Sydney Schneider. And, you know, these these people have worked with children with autism. They have their own children with autism. And, and they know that, that our kids are worth fighting for, you know, and getting yeah. getting their bodies better so that we can they can enjoy their lives. And we, we can, you know, know that we've done what we had to do as like doctors and parents is to get them medical treatment that isn't, you know, it isn't in the forefront right now, but it's out there. And, and yeah. like doctors and, and functional medicine doctors, there's, there's, I don't know, there's dozens and dozens of autism docs in North America and they're popping up all over the world. Yeah. Well, Sonia, uh, keep doing the work that you do. I, I think what you do is spectacular and uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's clinicians like you that are truly changing the direction medicine is going in and for the better. And, uh, it's awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. 
Thank you. I, I have to give credit to the families and the kids because I share this information every day and, and some people it connects with and they do it. And then I get to be part of this incredible journey of watching a child medically improve and then thrive. And and that's such a gift, you know, and, and to still kind of have connections with those families over 20 years is, is amazing. I hope to, to yeah. continue to be able to know these families as they grow up and hopefully have their own kids and families and jobs and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how can people find you? So I put together an informational website for parents, educators, uh, professionals. It's called treatautism.ca. I work clinically out of uh, a clinic in Burlington. So we do, um, you know, treatment within our province. We also consult with other doctors uh, internationally now, actually. (laughs) kind of crazy. But yeah, it's um, and we're happy to share our knowledge with any doctor who's interested in learning we work directly with naturopaths who are working with someone, say, in a different province or state so that they can have our info, but they can they can deliver the treatment. Uh, we can do some consultation, you know, non-medical consultation where we can say, hey, look, I, I did this recently with a with a child. I said, go ask your medical doctor these questions, get your child these tests, and, and thankfully it worked and the child's feeling better now. So there's there's lots of people out there to help and we, we can either help you directly or we can be um, part of the team to get you connected with someone who can help. Great. Well, Sonia, thanks for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, you doing what you do to get this health information out there. I know it's not just autism that you're, you're helping educate people on. So I think it's amazing. Well, thank you so much. And I hope you'll, I hope you'll come back. Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the natural man podcast. Subscribe to our channel and check out our other episodes and check us out on Instagram at the natural man podcast. My name is Mike C. Thanks for joining us. Stay healthy. This has been the natural man podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.